Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Genesis chapter 5, the title of the study is Death is an Enemy. Death is an Enemy enemy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together and worship you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for everything you've done for us, in us, and through us. And we pray tonight that you keep all of us safe on this campus, that you'll empower every servant, um, and that, once again, your word would just be a blessing to the people on this campus. And if there's anyone who does not have a personal relationship with you through trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that you withdraw them to yourself. And I pray for the spiritual blinders to be lifted, the hard hearts to be softened. And Lord, we once again do thank you for those who've joined us online as well. We pray for your blessings in their lives. And I pray for the gift of teaching. So fill me afresh, I pray, with your spirit. And may I decrease and you increase. And you be glorified, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So if you read ahead, uh, maybe some of you might have gotten a little bored with what you read about 10 specific family groups uh, that are mentioned in the genealogy that you see in chapter 5. So maybe that reading was not exciting for you if you read ahead. Uh, But there are some spiritual nuggets uh, that we'll dig up. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, apply those spiritual nuggets to our lives. Uh, But at the end of the day, at the end of the study, my prayer, my hope is that we'll all find encouragement uh, when we, like I say, get to the end of this chapter. And and so we're going to look at verse 1 in Genesis chapter 5. It says, this is the book. In other words, this is the written record, the history of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So in the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And so we're looking at the family records of Adam. And so, and we also see this reminder that that God made man in his likeness. Well, first of all, Adam, man, mankind, um, and you'll see mankind in verse 2 of Genesis 5, uh, they're actually translated from the same Hebrew word, Adam. And so that's what you see if you want to do your extra studies and, and look behind this English word. And then when we remind ourselves of uh, of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, uh, we will see that, like it says here in verse 1 of Genesis 5, that that mankind was made in the image of God according to his, that is God's likeness. And so once again, we see that in verse 1 here in Genesis 5. We also see that back in Genesis chapter 1. Verses 26 and 27, if you want to look at that as a reference. 
And so when we say that man was made or humans were made in the image of God, it means that humans were created, first of all, with the moral likeness to God. Uh, for example, human, we, we have a conscience and we can uh, make moral judgments. And then also like God, mankind, humans, male and female, we have an intellect. We can, we can think. And also as part of being made in the image and likeness of God, we have the ability to choose. And like God, as we speak about the first man who was created, first humans that were created, they were made without sin. They were made without a sin nature. In fact, man was made in like a miniature Trinity, so to speak. And so we, we know that God has a triune a, uh, nature, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They, they, they are co-eternal. Each person uh, in the Trinity always existed. They're equally God. But as yet, as we read the scriptures, there's one God who eternally exists in one person. But man, we were made as a miniature Trinity, so to speak. Body, soul, and spirit. In verse 2 in Genesis 5, it says that he, speaking of God, he created them, created mankind, male and female, and he blessed them and he called them mankind or Adam. In other words, he called them humankind in the day that they were created. And so we see that God called both the male and female humankind. Both male and female are of the same kind. Both are equally human. But of course, you see some differences. Uh, For example, genetically on a cellular level, this is not visible to the naked eye. Females have two X chromosomes and males have one X chromosome and one Y chromosome. So that's to the naked eye. There are some differences, things that we can't even see. But then visibly, there are some obvious differences that we could even see in babies, let alone in adult biological men and women. So there there are some differences, but yet the male and female are called humankind, equally human of the same kind. You know, one question I believe that evolutionists will have a hard time explaining It's how do you get male and female humans from a series of accidents? It's it's hard enough from from an accident to come up with one gender. But, But how do you get two, male and female, of the same kind, supposedly by luck, supposedly by chance or accidentally, and yet and still these two genders who are of the same kind, they are They are compatible. They can come together and they can create another little human. That's not by accident. Evolutionists will have a, they're going to have to try to answer that one. It's not by chance, it's by design. We have a designer. The designer is in the scriptures. Elohim, specifically Yahweh, or however you pronounce the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, 
And in verse 3 it says, And Adam lived 130 years, and he begot or fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. And the name Seth means appointed or appointed one. could also mean compensation. And so this Seth was appointed in the place of Abel. Because remember, Abel was murdered by his brother Cain in the previous chapter in Genesis chapter 4. But it is through Seth's lineage, through his bloodline, the Messiah or the Christ would come. The seed with the capital S that we saw promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's the Messiah. He's going to come through Seth, through this one whose name means appointed or compensation. And according to the previous chapter, Enosh was born to Seth. And then it says that that men, the descendants of Seth, they began to call upon the name of the Lord as they would gather regularly in public worship. But another thing that I see interesting about verse three. And to kind of spot the interesting thing that I see in verse three, you kind of have to go back to verse two. No, I'm sorry, in verse one, where it says that. That God created man in the likeness of God. And so when you look at verse 1 and then come to verse 3, you see that that Seth, that, that Adam's son is made after his own likeness. Whereas Adam was made in the image of God, it says here in verse 1. It says he, Seth, was made after Adam's own likeness, after his image. You see, once again, Adam... He was created by God, and he did not have a human mother or father. God created him as fully mature. So he was created in the image and likeness of God. But now Adam, in his fallen nature, because he sinned, because he disobeyed God, now it says that, that, that as he fathered Seth, he made him in his own likeness after his image. And so what is that hinting at? That is hinting at the fact that man who was born after the fall are created now with the sin nature that we got from the first Adam. We're all created with the sin nature, including Seth. But yes, the scriptures also tell us that we all are in the image of God. Yes, humans, we are made in the image of God, but that image Uh, Is marred because we have the sin nature from Adam. You know, Psalm 51, verse 5, David understood this. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity or guilt. Uh, One version of the Bible says, I was guilty when I was born. And in sin, my mother conceive me she conceived me in sin and the same thing that david said as inspired by the holy spirit as god gave him the inspired word same thing he said we can say that about us every human being can say that about themselves why because we got this sin nature we too made in the image of of adam and of course we look like our parents physically. See, but as Christians, 
I know most of you, you've already repented and you put your trust in Jesus for salvation, which means you are a Christian, you are a believer, you are a part of the bride of Christ. And so as Christians, the goal of sanctification is to live in victory over sin and to live in victory over that sin nature that we got from Adam. And the goal of sanctification is to be more like Jesus, to be more like the last Adam. That's speaking once again of Jesus. And we can do that. We can, we can overcome this old nature that we got from Adam by surrendering to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwelling us, he molds us and shapes us into the image of Jesus. And so a prayer that, that we can add if you're not doing it already is, Lord, today help me to be more like Jesus in my thoughts. Help me to be more like Jesus in my words and also in my actions. And help me to be like the old, be less like the old me. Help me to be less like what I received from that first Adam operating in the sin nature in the flesh. And so this is the goal of sanctification. And this is where believers are. This is the stage of salvation that we are in. You see, we are saved. We are also being saved. And then in the future, we will be saved. How can that be? And so, because you see that in the scriptures. You see these different tenses when you see salvation. And that's because the moment we put our trust in Jesus for salvation, we are justified. We are declared righteous. We have a right standing with God. We don't move from that standing. Not guilty, declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed into our accounts as if we were righteous all along. That's our standing. We don't move from that. And so that's why some scriptures speak in salvation as past tense. We are saved. And so that is true. But we're also being saved. That's sanctification. Less like the old us that was created in Adam with that sin nature and hopefully becoming more like Jesus. Unfortunately, some grow faster and and are becoming more like Jesus in our practical lives faster than others. And maybe that's because there's an issue with surrendering to the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's an issue with spending time with the Lord in the word of God and spending that time in prayer. Maybe there's an issue in those areas of why some Christians are growing and are being more sanctified in our practical lives than others. But then we will be saved. And these bodies will be glorified. That's that's the final stage of salvation. So in other words, to put it simply, our spirit is saved immediately. We become spiritually alive immediately when we repent and place our trust in Christ. And then to also put it simply, as we, as we walk in the word, as we follow the Holy Spirit, our soul is being saved. And then future tense, our bodies will be redeemed. Our bodies will be saved. Glorified bodies, to put it simply. In verses 4 and 5, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. And, and so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, <clears throat> and he died. <clears throat> 900 
in 30 years. How does somebody look? I mean, they, they <laughs> kind of look like a walking pillar of dust or something. I don't, I don't know how that looks. <clears throat> because I look at myself and I'm, 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 I'm 44 and I'm breaking down. And so, how, I mean, at 930 years old. And so you notice that people were living for a long time. And one of the reasons is that the, this vapor canopy that was surrounding the earth, it helped to protect them from harmful rays, these ultraviolet rays, which was, they, and that would have sped up the aging process. And so they were protected from that because remember the scriptures tell us that it had not yet rained upon the earth. It won't rain until the flood. And so they're being protected from these rays, these harmful rays, slowing down this aging process. But then number two, the effects of sin, they, they were taking effect uh, slowly in humans. And, and so as a result, the, the gene pool was, was still kind of or relatively pure, even to the point where early on in the, in the human race, in the human history, you had family members, they were able to marry each other, which was necessary to, to get things going. But because the effects of sin were slowly taking effect in humans, also you have, um, you know, these diseases, they, they have not manifested themselves yet. But now, of course, disease and sickness is running more rampant. But, but those are a couple of reasons why people were living so long during that time. And in verses 6 and 8 in Genesis 5, it says that Seth uh, lived 105 years and he begot Enosh. And after he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years. And so we come to Enosh, and I believe we were introduced to him in the previous chapter. Enosh, by way of reminder, means man or mortal man. It can mean subject to death or mortal frailty. In verses 9 through 11, it says that Enosh lived 90 years and he begot Canaan or Kenan. It's another variation. And so after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. And Canaan, by the way, if you wanted to write this down or try to memorize it, it means possession acquired. And I've even seen one definition. It means smith. So, so possession acquired or smith is what Canaan means. And, and a variation, once again, of his name is Canaan. And in verses 12 through 14, it says that Canaan um, lived 70 years and he begot Mahalalel. And after he begot Mahalalel, Canaan lived 840 years, and he has sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan or Canaan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalalel, by the way, means praise of God, or it could mean God is splendor. And the third meaning could be God be praised. So praise of God, God is splendor, or God be praised. Then in verses 15 through 17, Mahalalel lived 65 years and he begot Jared. 
After he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So, so all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. And some of you are probably thinking, is this man really going to read all of these names? Yes, I am. We're going to go through all of it. Eat up. <laughs> these are like vegetables. but it, it, The Lord, he, he, he'll show us what we need. Okay, but Jared, by the way means descent. Jared means descent. And in verses 18 through 20, Genesis 5, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. He fathered Enoch. After he fathered Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. And so we have another son in the line, Enoch. Enoch means dedicated or dedication. Dedicated or dedication. And by the way, I know we saw another Enoch in Genesis chapter 4. This is a different Enoch from Genesis 4 because in Genesis 4, that Enoch was a descendant of Cain. And so in verses 21 through 24, Talking about Enoch still, he lived 65 years and he begot Methuselah. Now, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not. That is, he was not found among men. Why? Because God took him, it tells us in verse 24. And so Methuselah means man of the dart or another definition I saw, which is totally different, is when he dies, comma, judgment, when he dies, judgment. And so after fathering Methuselah, it says that Enoch walked with God. Notice that he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. Now, that's, that's interesting that, that, that he will begin to walk with the Lord in close fellowship with the Lord after he has a child. And if you think about that as a parent, uh, a lot of the children that we have, some more than others, will definitely make us want to walk with the Lord just a little closer day by day. I told somebody that um, some of us wouldn't even have a prayer life if it were not for our children. And so thank God for our children. But but he began to walk with God after fathering Methuselah. He said for 300 years. And so this man was in continual and habitual close fellowship with the Lord. And so that that brings up a question for all of us. As we take a pause in the study, we need to ask ourselves, how is my walk with the Lord? Enoch's walk with the Lord was was close. It was very close. It was continual. How was our walk with the Lord? Have we allowed anyone or anything to come between us and our fellowship with him? What have we allowed to come between us and the Lord? We need to ask ourselves that. We need to take a pause and evaluate that. 
As we go through our readings, as we go through the study, it's beneficial spiritually to take a pause and meditate upon the word of God, meaning that you are chewing uh, mentally upon the word of God. You're chewing spiritually upon the word of God. You're, you're looking at the word of God just backwards and forwards and diagonally seeing, just, just getting every bit of nutrient you can get out of it, much like a, a cow would chew the cud. It will chew it and swallow it and bring it back up and chew it some more and get every bit of juice and nutrients out of it. And so we need to take a pause here and really meditate upon this and ask, how was our walk with him? Do we want to be like Enoch? I would say so personally, I would want to be like this and have this close and continual and habitual uh, fellowship with him. His walk was very close with the Lord and it got to the point where it tells us that Enoch was taken away. He was taken away from among men because the Lord, because the Lord, it says, took him. God took him. And the scriptures are clear in the New Testament that that he was taken without dying. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, it says that by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. He didn't experience it and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. He pleased God in this close fellowship. He pleased God. As he placed his trust in God day by day. And the thing about Enoch being taken away by the Lord. What we see here is a picture of the rapture of the church. And and this same God pleasing people who are alive at the time of the rapture will be taken up as well. And I put it that way for a reason. You'll see why. Just to connect it with Hebrews 11, 5, that the same God-pleasing people who are alive at the time of the rapture will be taken up, will be caught up, in other words. The Greek word is harpazo. It means to seize, to carry off by force, to, to snatch out or away, will be snatched out of this world, to meet the Lord in the air. The same God-pleasing people, like Enoch, have pleased God, will be raptured. The question remains, how do we please God? Well, if we keep reading in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so obviously, uh, Enoch had this attitude. Obviously, Enoch had this faith. Therefore, because he had faith, because he trusted in God, because he believed that God exists, because uh, he believed that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seeks him. Because of that, Enoch pleased God. And we too can do the same. And if there's anyone who hasn't placed their trust in Jesus for salvation, you can please the Lord, not by doing a bunch of works, not by giving a lot of money, but by repenting and putting your trust in him for salvation. You too will become a part of the bride of Christ and will be taken up at that day whenever Jesus comes back to snatch away his church 
to catch up his church, rapture his church out of this earth. You know, the people who trust in the Lord, who have the same faith as Enoch. Uh, these are the people who have forsaken all that is false, who have forsaken all that is harmful to them in a spiritual way. We have forsaken that old manner of life. You, we have forsaken that which we want to do on our own. We've denied ourselves. We put our trust in him. We're following him. We've acknowledged that God is true, that the God of the Bible is truly God, that Jesus is truly the way, the truth, and the life. We've acknowledged that, and we put our trust in that, and we put our trust in him. So essentially, whenever we put our trust in him, what we are telling God indirectly is that I believe you. Is that God, you are telling the truth. There is no lie in God. In fact, Jesus says, I am the truth. He is the truth. And so that's what we're doing when we place our trust in him. We are acknowledging the fact that he is true. What he says is true. This also shows a pattern of God rescuing. I know people have different views about this, but, but, but this will support the pre-tribulation rapture view. Because you see here a pattern of God rescuing his people before judgment is poured out. What judgment is coming? The flood. The flood is coming. And so you see a picture of Enoch being raptured up before God pours his judgment out upon the earth. And that's what happens during the tribulation period. That is not the wrath of man. That is the wrath of God. That is not the wrath of the enemy. That is the wrath of God during the tribulation. And so on this earth right now, before the tribulation period, yes, we suffer tribulation as believers, but that tribulation comes from the world. It comes from Satan. But the tribulation period, that seven-year period, that 70th week of Daniel, that time of Jacob's trouble, in other words, that, that is God pouring out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. Just like with this flood, was, was going to happen here as we continue to read, God is pouring his wrath upon the world. And so here we see a little pattern, a little picture of this pre-tribulation rapture, this rapture before judgment. Even 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 tells us that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we here hold to the view of a pre-tribulation rapture because he did not appoint us to wrath. The tribulation period is his wrath. Jesus already took the wrath for us on the cross. That was the father pouring his wrath upon Jesus so that we wouldn't have to experience that and be separated from him for eternity. So in other words... God or Jesus, he's not going to beat up his bride during the tribulation period. And so God did not appoint us to wrath, but we see a picture of that with Enoch here as he is taken up for God took him, it says. But there's some interesting things in the scriptures about Enoch. Because the same Enoch who was taken away, who was snatched uh, out of this earth who didn't die, it says that he prophesied. In Jude uh, verses 14 and 15, 
And it only has one chapter. It says, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he prophesied about these men also saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so Enoch prophesied, obviously, before he was taken up by the Lord. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Here he's prophesying of the second coming of Jesus when Jesus actually touches down after the tribulation period, that seven-year period, the worst period in the history of this earth. And he's going to come with the saints, this huge number of saints. Many of us will be in that number. Those of us who are truly saved, you will be in that number. You're going to come with him. You're going to assist him in ruling and reigning on this earth during that millennial kingdom. And I mentioned the millennial kingdom because that's, that will be the next thing after the tribulation period. That 1,000 year reign of Jesus on this earth. His headquarters will be Jerusalem. He's going to rule with the rod of iron, the scriptures tell us, which means he's going to rule with an enforced righteousness. So sin will not be able to 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 let loose. Because, yes, there are some people who are going to go into the millennial kingdom and their non glorified bodies. And those of us in our glorified bodies, the one who comes back with him, we're going to help rule and reign, like I said. But some of those in their non glorified body. Yeah, they're still going to have that sin nature, but Jesus is going to rule with that rod of iron. So these verses are talking about the second coming and Enoch, he saw that the Lord showed him that and he talked about that judgment that is coming after that second coming of Jesus. So Jesus didn't come to judge the first time, but when he comes back, he's going to come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And yes, he's going to judge Starting with the judgment of the nation, separating the sheep from the goats. And so as we talk about this prophecy that that was recorded from Enoch. Some of you, you already may be thinking about the book of Enoch. And why was it left out of the canon of scriptures of our Bibles that we read if it's something that was quoted from it or supposedly quoted from it. Well, well, first of all, it doesn't necessarily mean that that book was quoted from because this knowledge, what was recorded, could have been passed down through oral tradition, first off. So we can't be dogmatic. Was it taken from the book of Enoch or oral tradition? It could be oral tradition. And specifically, there's more than one um, book in the Enoch series. So, so this quote would probably be from the from first Enoch, for example, if it were indeed quoted from there. But, but secondly, we have to understand this, that, that when Jude quoted and, and, and recorded this prophecy from Enoch, he did not add any other information that's not elsewhere in the Bible. So it matches up with scriptures. It does not contradict it. So other places in the Bible, even without this verse in Jude verses 14 and 15, you would still get the fact that Jesus is coming back. You would still get the fact that Jesus is going to judge. But then number three, and talking about why was the book of Enoch left out of canon if, if something was quoted from it. Number three, 
the inclusion of this quote, of this prophecy, even if it was from the book of Enoch, if we were totally sure about that, does not mean that the entire book of Enoch is inspired, but that it has some valid truth. And by the way, that's something the Apostle Paul did. Because if you read Acts 17, 8, 17, 28, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and if you read Titus chapter 1, verse 12, you'll also see that the Apostle Paul quoted from some pagan uh, poet and writers. But he's not saying that they're inspired by God. He just took a commonly known truth from them and he used it once again in Acts 17, 28, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And in Titus 1.12. And so it doesn't mean he's endorsing that entire work of literature where he took those quotes. You know, same thing if this prophecy was taken from uh, 1 Enoch. But once again, it could have been passed down through oral tradition. But, uh, but finally, the book of Enoch is not in our canon of scriptures that we have. It's because it's a, a pseudepigraphal work. Uh, and when we talk about the pseudepigrapha, that, that, that means that these are books that attempt to imitate scriptures. And so they claim to be written by somebody, but they're really written by somebody who's unknown. And so in order to get these books read by the masses, they have to put a name on there that people would know. And so Enoch or the series of Enoch and other books will be under the category of, of the pseudepigrapha book, not books not written by the people they claim to be written by. And so the pseudepigrapha, by the way, the books in this category, they were written between 200 BC to AD 300, which is far later than Enoch ever lived. You know, you see that with some of the, you know, these other writings as well. Not only that, but not only are they written by unknown writers, lying and claiming that they're written by somebody. But also the books in this category, in the pseudepigrapha, they, they contain historical errors as well as what you would call um, anachronisms. When we talk about these anachronisms, these mean, it just means that the person, thing, idea that exists, that it writes about, is way out of its time. For example, like let's say there's some writing somebody claims to be written in 1000 BC, but then... It, you know, it talks about a car. That, that's an anachronism. That's way out of time, way out of his timeline. And so a lot of the books in the pseudepigrapha, it contains historical errors and it has things that are outside of his time that supposedly it was written in. Not only that, but they would contain, you know, false teachings, teachings that don't line up with the rest of inspired scripture. So that's why, uh, although there's this, this prophecy that that, that may be taken from the book of Enoch or maybe from oral tradition. And once again, it doesn't mean that the, that entire work would be included in the scriptures. But then it's something interesting about Enoch, something else interesting. And, and this is just a theory or a thought that some people have. And, and, it's a good, and it's a good thought, good points to it. You know, some people believe that Enoch will actually join Elijah and prophesy during that first half of the tribulation period, which will be the first three and a half years of that seven year period. So some people believe that. Why? Because Elijah and Enoch did not die. They were just taken up by the Lord. So that, that's why some Bible scholars uh, believe this. And some of you may believe this. And, and there's some good points to that. 
But I know one thing in regard to Elijah, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so everybody, you know, place a check by Elijah pretty much, but are not quite sure about Enoch or some believe that it's Moses because a lot of these things that these two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 are going to do are similar uh, to, to Moses and Elijah. Some of the things that they do, their ministries are similar. But then Revelation, I mean, when you read chapter 11, it, does not, it doesn't even mention any names, really. So it could be, as another option, it could be that these are just uh, people that the Lord raised up who minister in the spirit and power of these two great men in the Bible from the past. Just like John the Baptist ministered in the power of Elijah. It was reminiscent of Elijah's ministry, so it could be that as well. But, but I think it's interesting that Enoch could be a possibility as one of those two witnesses in Revelation. But I don't think anybody can be quite dogmatic about that. But it's a good thought. There's some good points. But, but Genesis chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, as we move on, it says, Methuselah lived 187 years and he begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived Um, 182 years and he had sons and daughters so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died now Lamech go into the meaning of names it means powerful or conqueror powerful or conqueror so that's one point I want to bring out from these two verses but I also want to address in verse uh, 27 Methuselah's age Because Methuselah, and this might help you on some Bible trivia or something like that, but he is the longest living human. 969 years. You know, what's interesting about his length of years is that the flood came in the year of Methuselah's death. So the flood came in the year of Methuselah's death. So we could do the math. First of all, Methuselah was 187 years old when he fathered Lamech. So if you're calculating, start with 187. Started with 187 years old when he fathered Lamech. And then Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered Noah. So add 182 to 187. And then by the end of the chapter... You'll see that Noah was 500 years old. So add 500 to 187 and 182. And then if you skip forward to Genesis chapter 7, verse 6, you'll see that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. So what you want to do is add 100 years to that number. So 187 plus 182 plus 500 plus 100, and you get 969 years. That's the year that Methuselah died. So the flood came in the year of Methuselah's death. So a couple important things about his age. Longest living human, and the flood came in the year of his death. Verses 28, 29, Genesis 5. Lamech lived 182 years, and he had a son. 
And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And so in Hebrew, the name Noah sounds like bring us relief, rest, or it could mean comfort. And so he was called Noah. He was called uh, bring us relief. He was called rest or comfort uh, because of that toil of our hands, because of that work that is difficult now, which is part of the consequences that, that was brought upon Adam, that was brought upon us because of sin. And we see that back in Genesis 3. And so this work is hard. We, we, we need somebody to bring us comfort. We need somebody to bring us rest. We, we need somebody to bring us some relief. Going to call him Noah. But of course, ultimately, as we fast forward to Jesus, we know that uh, this ultimate rest, this relief, this comfort can only be found in Christ. As you look at Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, it says, come to me. This is Jesus speaking. All you who labor, all of you who are weary, you're tired and you're heavy laden. And he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm willing to teach you. Would you, you can learn from me if you're willing to. For I'm gentle, I'm lowly. In other words, I am humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden or my load is light. And so we can be yoked up with Jesus, in other words. We can, we, we can learn from him. We can come to him first and foremost with those of you who are tired. You're tired of doing things your own way. You're tired of things not working out the way you thought they would, the way you, you prayed about. Even though you may not have been praying to the God of the Bible, things are just not falling into place. Some of people are, some people are going to palm readers and, and all these different folks trying to work things out and buying crystals and things like that, going down to Sedona, to the vortex or whatever they want to call it. And, and things are still not falling into place for them. They're, and, and they're getting a little weary. They're getting a little tired. And maybe there's some people in this place or online who are in that place. Well, Jesus invited you to come to him if you're weary and, and if you're heavy laden, you're carrying a heavy load. And maybe that heavy load comes from you trying to be religious, coming from you trying to check off every single box on your own list of trying to keep the law in your own power. But you're heavy laden or maybe the traditions of men have been burdensome to you. And so you have this heavy load upon you. But Jesus says, hey, come to me. I know the Pharisees, for example, and there are some people like Pharisees today. I know they're putting this heavy load upon you. And it's hard for you to keep every single one of these laws and the power of your own strength. But come to me. Find rest in me. And so we see this in Jesus, the greater than Noah. Learn from me. Be yoked up with me. Just like sometimes you will have a more experienced animal hooked up with a less experienced animal. And that more ex experienced animal will teach that younger one how to do things. But we're yoked up with Jesus. If we're yoked up with him, we're going to learn how to love the way he loves. If we're yoked up with him and we truly learn from him, then we'll learn how to be gentle. We'll learn how to be lowly in heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, he says. And 
And so when we speak of those burdens, it speaks of the obligation Christ lays upon his followers versus what religion, man, will place upon people. You see, Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. Why? Because he's with you. He's doing the heavy lifting. And in fact, he, he, he just focuses on two great commandments instead of this whole list of hundreds and hundreds of them. Love the Lord with everything within you and love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, in John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So pretty much if you love others the way God wants you to love others, then you fulfill the law. Why? Because if you're loving people as you should, if you're loving people in a Christ-like way, then you won't murder them. You won't harm them. You won't steal from them. You won't commit fornication. You won't commit adultery. You won't backbite and things like that if you're loving people the way God wants you to. But then being yoked up with Christ also means that we'll have the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of love within us. And so what a blessing it is to come to Jesus and find that true rest and comfort. You see, they thought they would perhaps maybe find that hope in Noah. But really, that hope is found in Genesis 3.15 in that seed, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's where you're going to find rest for your souls. Verses 30 and 31, back in Genesis 5, after he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and he begot Shem. Shem means name. He begot Ham. Ham means hot. And he begot Japheth, which means open. And so there's something to remember about this genealogy that we looked at. This genealogy with 10 main people in it. We need to remember that not every single person is listed in this genealogy, because it, it focuses on the family line of Christ and also brings us to Noah, on whom we're going to focus on pretty soon as we continue in our study in, in Genesis. And so in Scripture, as we continue to read, you'll see that Ham, uh, one of the sons of Noah, he is actually the youngest son, and Japheth is the oldest. But notice that Shem... Is listed first in verse 32. Why is he listed first? Well, my theory is that because he is in a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you can find that in Luke chapter 3, verse 36. And so, yes, Noah and Shem are in the lineage of Jesus Christ according to Jesus' humanity. And so essentially what you see in Genesis 5 records the bloodline of the Messiah from Adam to Noah's son, Shem. But, but, but one thing, and I know you probably noticed it, but, but I just want to point it out just in case. One, one thing to notice from Genesis 5 is that all these men listed in the genealogy have something in common. And if you continue to read, what you'll see in common are the three words, and he died. So so all of these men died. All of them had it in common except for Enoch. 
One thing you want to learn about death is that death was not in God's original plan. God is the result of sin, which was never in God's perfect will. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Well, Adam didn't die physically immediately. He died spiritually first. That spiritual death was immediate. But here, Genesis 5, we see the other part of this death come to fruition as he died. And not only that, but everybody who followed him died. So, except, like I said, for Enoch, who was taken up. And so we see how his sin has affected others, including us. And so this should actually answer the question that some people have about the presence of sickness and disease. Why, why is there so much craziness and evil in the world, some would ask. And some have their heart bent towards blaming God. But God is not the blame. Man is the blame. And so because of the presence of sin in the world, not necessarily that you did anything personally that was wrong, but just the presence of sin in the world, period affecting our genes and, and so forth, affecting our bodies, affecting our minds and so forth. Yes, we have the presence of sickness and disease and suffering in this world. See, sin brings death, as we find out in Romans six twenty three. just the first part of that, for the wages of sin is death. And so we see the result of sin being death. We see that spiritually. We see that if somebody dies spiritually with no relationship with God through faith in Christ, we see them experience eternal death, eternal separation from God. Of course, we see the physical death. We see that the wages of sin is death in that way as well. But, but how about this? And, and just, just kind of thinking in these terms as well. Whenever there's sin... Think of death in a lot of situations. And when you talk about death, think of separation. And so there's, there's death, not only spiritually, death, not only eternally because of sin, but even sin can cause death to relationships. Sin can even cause death to marriages. Sin can even cause death to careers. If you're doing something sinful on a job, that can just mess up your career. So don't allow sin to overtake you in your lives. But Jesus, as a part of good news, he, he took care of the sin problem when he paid the penalty of our sins on the cross. Because the wages of sin is death, Jesus said, okay, I'll pay the wages, and he died. Why? So that we won't have to die, being eternally separated from God. Not only that, but he conquered death this enemy through the resurrection 
Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. It says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Death, this enemy, he's loosed the pains of that. Why? Because it was not possible that Jesus should be held by death. Through the resurrection, Jesus conquered this enemy called death. But not only that, Jesus even defeated the devil who was using death as a weapon against man to hold man in bondage through the fear of death. As it tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, this eternal God, this eternal son, Jesus Christ, he took upon human flesh like the rest of us. He shared in that so that what? Through death, he might destroy him, that is Satan, who had the power of death. And in doing that, in destroying the enemy, Satan, he released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so here you had the enemy of our souls, Satan, using another enemy of ours, death, to hold us in bondage through the fear of death. But for the believer, those who repented, had this change of mind, who turned from sin, turned to God and trusted in Jesus Christ. For the Christian, we do not need to fear death. Why? Because the sting of death has been removed. And what is the sting of death? The scriptures tell us that the sting of death is sin. And so the stinger has been removed. And I just got stung, by the way, at the church picnic by a bee. I went to rub my hair, whatever hair I have left, and, and I felt, I heard a quick buzz and I felt something on my finger. And, you know, it wasn't, I didn't really feel anything at first. And I'm not trying to sound tough or anything, but I, I really didn't. But then when I pulled out the stinger, then it started itching and, I, you know, I started to feel a little bit. But it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. But I know people who've been stung by bees and wasps and things like that. And they, they had these allergic reactions and so forth. But, but, I, but I come to tell you that those bees and those wasps with those stingers would not be as intimidating if those stingers were gone. They would not be intimidating. It's the same thing with death, not as intimidating. Why? Because the stinger is gone. The stinger has been dealt with. In other words, sin has been dealt with. Why? Because Jesus took the penalty for our sins. And so there's no reason for Christians to fear death. For the believer, death is just a doorway that that will get us into eternity to dwell with our God, to dwell with our heavenly father. And then one day, because of Jesus's victory, we're going to receive our resurrected and or glorified bodies. As it tells us in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 53 to, to 57, and I'll really read it quickly. It says, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. And that's because we wouldn't be aware of sin if it were not for the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory that is over our enemy death through who? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our victory over death is tied to Jesus. And so one day we'll get to express those words that we see in verse 55. When we receive our resurrected or glorified bodies, we'll be able to give this taunt, this song to death. We'll be able to sing this song if you want to put it to the song. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, speaking of the realm of the dead, where is your victory? All because Jesus has conquered the grave. All because Jesus. Jesus has conquered death, we will be able to have victory ourselves over death through those resurrected bodies. Amen? As the worship team comes up. But then finally, death will be totally done away with. And we're going to see this final stage of the victory against this enemy. Because in the Bible, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So yes, Jesus is victorious over death through his resurrection. We'll experience victory over death as we receive our glorified bodies. But then there's going to come a point where death is totally no more. And we're going to see that in Revelation uh, 20, verse 14. This is at the great white throne judgment when death and Hades, this realm of the dead, is going to be cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So praise God. For the victory over our enemy. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you are to us. We thank you for this victory that we have in Christ. And we just pray that we walk in that victory. We walk with our our heads held up high, knowing that we are more than conquerors. Knowing that we are connected with the winner. And you are the winner. We are on the winning team. It is written. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. We pray your blessing upon us throughout this week. May you use us according to your will throughout this week. And if there's anyone you'll have us to minister to or witness to, Lord, may you put them in our paths. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.